Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you submitted this morning that you turned in. So uh, take your Bible and we will be in a lot of different passages for our uh, monthly Bible question and answer. We won't be able to spend very long on any one topic because there were a lot of questions that were turned in. Um, but we'll at least maybe share a, f- uh, a few thoughts on each one to, uh, to sort of prime the pump and at least get us thinking about these very important issues. The very first question uh, is a, a one that is uh, a fairly commonly repeated question. People wonder about this a lot in our day and age. And the question simply reads, uh, is cremation biblical? And uh, maybe the best way to answer that would be to say that uh, cremation is not unbiblical. In other words, it's not biblical in the sense that certainly it's not mandated or something that is obligated. Uh, but really there is nothing in Scripture that would... Uh, go against cremation. However, I should mention this because this is where the, the, the concern comes into this question and, and a lot of the confusion. There are a number of statements in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament uh, where God uh, vehemently opposes His people Israel, as the pagan nation surrounding them, but especially His own people for adopting this practice of making uh, their children pass through the fire. And a lot of people read that, and the assumption is that it's talking about cremation, burning the body uh, after uh, death. But that is not what God is addressing in those passages. Uh, when, God, when God has such strong words against that, he is actually talking about live human sacrifice. Uh, it was the practice of a lot of the pagan religions around Israel, and in fact it moved right into Israel, right just south of Israel, uh, I mean south of Jerusalem, right in the Hinnom Valley. It actually took place over uh, on the Mount of Olives in this, uh, this practice of child sacrifice, offering children, primarily the god Molech, but other gods, but uh, actually offering children, infants, uh, making them pass through the fire, that is offering them as live sacrifice, burning them to death. And uh, when God speaks of that, you can hear in the language. He speaks of it with so much abhorrence. In fact, on one occasion, I think it's through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, you know, you did this, and it was something that would never have entered my mind, would never even remotely thought of asking you to do something like that, showing how abhorrent it was. So in, in summary on the issue of cremation, some Christians are not comfortable with it because they, they feel that uh, they want to bury the body out of respect for the body that God has given. That's understandable. Uh, others really, you know, don't have any qualms about it because they realize that eventually, whether you bury the body or it's lost at sea or whatever, uh, you know, it's going to uh, basically, I don't know if this is the right word, but dissolve into to nothing, to ashes. Just uh, And so uh, the same type of thing will eventually happen so it's really a matter of conscience, however each Christian prefers to go about the issue of burial. But just suffice it to say, there really isn't anything in Scripture that you could point to that would say that there's something unbiblical or wrong about cremation. All right, from that question to the next question, from cremation to the new heaven and the new earth, someone asked about that. So let's turn over to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And here in Revelation 21, the Apostle John describes uh, our eternal home, and he does so by specifically mentioning three entities. Uh, He mentions a new heaven, a new earth, 
in the new Jerusalem. And the question that was asked was this, with a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, will everyone have equal access to all realms for eternity? There are really two aspects to that question. Uh, one is this, uh, will everyone have equal access? And that is probably a, a question that some people have wrestled with, with the distinction between the church and Israel, which is in Scripture. It is clear that God has a program for Israel. Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that God has temporarily set Israel aside because he is completing his church. But once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, he will return to his program for Israel. God is going to save Israel. Paul makes that clear in Romans 11. So some have wondered with these two distinct programs, if you will, uh, for Israel and the church, uh, when it comes to eternity, are these distinctions going to be maintained? And that's a valid question because certainly those distinctions are in place now. They will be in place in the future, in the seven-year tribulation period. They will certainly be in place in the millennial kingdom because the millennial kingdom is a kingdom promised to the Jewish people when they will be exalted in a unique way. Uh, one of the prophets says that in that day, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, ten men will grab the shirt sleeve of a Jew and say, take me to your your uh, Messiah. In other words, the Jews are going to have such a unique privileged position that the Gentiles in the world will, ten, will grab the sleeve of a Jewish person saying, I want to see your Messiah. I want to go. So even in the, the kingdom, there is going to be this distinction. But in answer to this question, it appears to me that in Revelation 21, John is trying to show that those distinctions are not going to be maintained in eternity. And you're going to be a, there's going to be a culmination of the people of God uh, that are in, in a oneness that's no longer the same type of distinction. And, and it comes out, for example, like in verse 12 of Revelation 21, referring to this new Jerusalem. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Well, that's obviously very Jewish, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But in, in the very... Uh, not the next verse, but the next one after that, it says, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And there John brings in, I think, an allusion to the church, because we read in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And uh, all the way through here, and in fact, the very reference to the New Jerusalem as a bride city, and in verse 9, it talks about the Lamb's wife, shows that clearly the occupants of this city are going to be the, uh, the church, which is the bride of Christ. So it appears to me that as John writes this description, he is trying to write it in such a way to talk about the fact that the people of God, whether we're talking about uh, Jewish people in the, under the Old Covenant or uh, Jewish people saved during the tribulation period, uh, that they will be in this eternal dwelling place, as well as the church of Jesus Christ, that is, believers in the church age. And so it appears that these, these distinctions will, if not be completely eradicated, certainly blurred quite a bit so there won't be major distinctions. So that's one part of an answer to the question. And the other part of the answer is, with a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, will everyone have equal access to all realms for eternity? So this, this angle of the question is, uh, where are we going to spend eternity? And the question is really asked well, because uh, contrary to what most Christians think, uh, for eternity we will be dwelling in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. That's not what most Christians think. What most Christians think is that we're going to spend eternity in heaven. 
Now, we all understand what we mean by that, but because when we die now, if you die now, you want to go to heaven. You want to go to be with the Lord. You don't want to remain here on earth. There's, this earth is sin-cursed. It's full of pain and heartache. So there's a sense in which you want release from this earth to go to heaven. But in eternity, when there's a new heaven and a new earth and the capital city, the new Jerusalem, there won't be those distinctions. It won't be any better in the new heaven than it will be in the new earth. Uh, and in fact, as John describes the capital city, the New Jerusalem, the, uh, he describes this, as we just were reading, this, this uh, city with gates. The gates are always open. So in other words, we can go in and out. We can go from the New Jerusalem uh, into heaven, into the new earth, and there won't be these distinctions. You won't want to get away from earth. Uh, and so the, the description, the way I read it, and the way John described it several times in Revelation when he mentions the New Jerusalem, he talks about it descending from God out of heaven. The implication is that the New Jerusalem, the capital of, the, of eternity, will actually be suspended between the new heaven and the new earth. Suspended there will be the New Jerusalem, and you can go wherever you want to go. You can go to the heaven, you can go to New Jerusalem, you can go to the new earth. Uh, and so, will we have equal access to all realms for eternity? I believe so, because um, where we won't be, obviously, is in what the book of Revelation describes as the lake of fire, hell, Gehenna, etc. That's the place of all the damned, all the lost of all the ages, but the redeemed, God's people, will be in the new heaven, new earth, and the new Jerusalem. All right, next question is, uh, and every month, this is so neat, we always get some little guy or little gal writing out a question and uh, this, this one comes from a youngster. Uh, why do we not have church and Sunday school every day? So here's a, a youngster who really likes church and Sunday school. So uh, whoever is uh, the teacher, you should be very encouraged, the Sunday school teacher here uh, of this. And uh, why not? Well, that's a commendable attitude. Uh, but one of the reasons why we don't have it every day is because the Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3, that if you don't work, you don't eat. So as much as you might like Sunday school and church, there are other parts to life and the other aspects to life, and part of those are working, a laboring. And that is also, as we talked about this morning, that is also a spiritual activity. It's wonderful that as a young person you want to have church and Sunday school every day and maybe think, oh, that's so, such a neat thing. It's about the Lord. Well, don't forget that school is about the Lord. Um, you maybe didn't want to hear that as a youngster. But school is about the Lord, and work is about the Lord. Everything's about the Lord, because whatever we do, we should do it as under the Lord. So we don't have church and Sunday school every day because, uh, for one reason, we, we have to work to eat, but also because the Lord has called us to be salt and light. So we don't want to you know, sort of hole up every day in, in our gathering. We want to be out in the world to be salt and light, which is our Lord's design. So now, that's why we don't have church and Sunday school every day. We, we come together on the Lord's Day to, to worship, to be equipped, to be encouraged, but also then to be sent out uh, to be salt and light during the week. Okay, next question says this. It's out of Romans chapter 10. So turn over to Romans chapter 10. This was really, of all the questions that I was reading through this afternoon and pondering, this one was uh, really unique in the sense it had been a while since I'd looked at this passage and, and uh, had really forgotten the argumentation that Paul uses here. So I appreciate the person who asked this one. In Romans 10, 18, and we'll read the verse, I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So here in Romans 10, 18, it is talking about how the gospel has spread to all the earth and the ends of the world. Does this include the American continent 
or is it a prophecy about what would take place? Also, do we know how fast the gospel spread and when it came to the Americans, uh, to the Native Americans, I think is the question here, trying to wrestle through when did it come here. Uh, so let me maybe just address that, but then address a, a, a broader issue that I think is behind this question. Uh, as far as I know from history, the gospel coming to America and thus the Native Americans didn't take place until uh, the early days of our country, before it was a country, of course, with the coming of the pilgrims uh, over uh, to this country to begin to, uh, you know, state claim here, etc. And of course, if you know your American history, uh, then you know that many were believers. Some were just God-fearing, weren't true biblical Christians, but there were, there were a number of genuine believers in Jesus Christ who sort of migrated over, came over, and you know the history of the founding of our country. And many of those brought the gospel with them and would have taken the gospel to those who were already here, what we would call Native Americans. And so uh, how fast the gospel spread, uh, if you're thinking from first century, it actually didn't spread that fast. Uh, in fact, it appears that it wasn't spreading fast enough, and so the Lord had to stir the pot to make it spread. In fact, the first time it began to be spread was in Acts 8 that was as a result of the martyrdom of Stephen. There was a persecution that arose, and, and the church scattered. For many years, even though Jesus had said, go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel, the believers kind of huddled in Jerusalem, and it was primarily a Jewish church for a lot of years. But that was never the Lord's design for it to remain a Jewish church. So he allowed the martyrdom of Stephen and, and then persecution to break out. And it says that the church was scattered, Acts 8, 4, and they went everywhere preaching the word to the Samaritans. And so then the word started going out beyond that. And, but then it sort of, again, hit a little stall. And so God saved the apostle Paul in Acts 9 and sent him out in, in Acts 13. Acts 10, Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles, but he did it kind of reluctantly, and he was, in fact, called on the carpet by Jewish believers in Acts 11 for doing it. What are you doing taking the gospel to the Gentiles? Why would you do that? And he basically, in his answer, says, I didn't have any choice. God made me do it. So he had to do it, but it really wasn't an eager task for him. But when Paul was saved and then sent out Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13, Basically, the rest of the book of Acts is about the spread of the gospel, but it only gets as far as Rome. So we're not talking about the rest of the world. So in answer to your question, it took a while for the gospel to spread. And what I'm thinking is probably behind this question, well, what about like people that were on this continent or other places who didn't hear the gospel? How does that relate to Romans 10, 18, which is a great question. Because here in this passage, Paul is talking about the spread of the gospel. But here in verse 18, this is really fascinating. As I said, I hadn't looked at this for a long time until this afternoon when I was going through these questions. When Paul, in his argumentation, refers sort of to a defense, he quotes here in Romans, uh, in Romans 10, 18, he actually quotes Psalm 19, 4. And we don't have time to go back to it, but you can jot that down. That passage is a passage about general revelation. Not the special revelation of the gospel through uh, faith in Christ, but it is a, a statement about general revelation. Paul alludes to this back in Romans 1 and basically says this. Everybody has enough information in creation to be responsible. So in other words, you don't have to tie yourself up in knots by thinking, yeah, but the only reason the Native Americans didn't, you know, didn't, didn't turn to God is because they didn't have the information. 
or the only reason the Africans, you know, or the Aborigines or these, these people in these, uh, you know, uh, outlying dark areas, uh, uh, backwards areas, uh, some people might say, you know, they, 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 they had no chance. But Paul quotes Psalm 19.4 to say, hey, listen, they had enough information to be responsible. Not enough to be saved, but if they would respond to the information they have, i.e. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, God would get them the information to be saved. So understand this. The problem is not, beloved, understand this. The problem is not, never has been, never will be, the problem with people ending up in hell is not that they didn't get the message. In other words, let me say it a different way. No one will ever stand before God and be able to rightly say, God, the only reason you're consigning me to hell is I never heard. If I would have heard, I would have believed. That will never happen. Never happen. In Romans 1, let's go back there. Paul builds on this, this statement from Psalm 19 to say, this is really the problem here. The problem is this in verse 19 of Romans 1, because what may be known of God is evident to them. It's obvious. All people should know there is a God. It's so obvious in creation. For God has shown it to them. How has God shown it? In creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and deity. So they are without excuse. Nobody will have any legitimate excuse to stand before God and say, if only it's your fault, God, if only you'd given me the gospel, I would be saved. No one will do that. In fact, rather than people wanting to go toward God and know God, what is the reality? The reality is they go the other way. As Paul says here in verse 21, because although they knew God, there was a time when all civilizations knew of the true God. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men, birds, forfeited animals, creeping things. That's what people do. They don't go toward God. They go away from him in idolatry, in the worship of animals. And isn't that the sad reality of what many in the Native American community have, has, have done? Many? They've, they've gone, instead of toward the true God, toward this idolatry of worshiping creation, cre creatures. And so verse 24 says, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. So Paul's quote, to, to answer your question, in Romans 10, 18, is actually a defense, in a sense, a defense of the fact that no one will be able to impugn God for his or her lost condition. We are sinners by birth, by nature, by choice, by practice. We, we don't want God. That's our natural condition. And it is only the grace of God. As, as it says in Scripture, there's none who seeks God, no, not one. Uh, so don't, don't let anyone tie you up in knots and, and sort of pin you into a corner and say, oh, what do you do about those who have never heard? How are you going to answer that one? A lot of unbelievers like to throw that out as an objection to biblical Christianity. What about those that have never heard? God is so unfair, so unrighteous for him to send people to hell as if there are people who are begging to want to know, but God is withholding the information from them. That's completely skewed. All right, next question says this. Um, we won't have to turn to it because it's quoted basically. 1 Samuel 16, 14 says, An evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. I thought, here's the question, I thought God had no evil spirits. How then does an evil spirit of the Lord torment Saul? 
And the answer to this question is found in, again, if we had time to turn back to it, you can jot it down. But in Job 1, where you have this interplay, this interchange between God and Satan, do you remember? God says, if you consider my ser- servant Job, there's none like him. Oh, yeah, he just serves you, God, because you put a wall of protection around him. But, you know, let some bad things happen to him, he'll turn from you. He'll con- you know, he'll blaspheme you. He'll curse you to your face, etc. And so God granted divine permission for an evil spirit, namely Satan, in that case, to go right after Job. And he didn't go after him just once. You remember it was in stages. And so uh, we see that anytime an evil spirit, uh, I shouldn't say anytime, but in these occasions where we have these types of statement, an evil spirit from the Lord, we have a lens to see that through from Job 1, that this was an evil spirit from the Lord in the sense that, that uh, this could not happen apart from God's divine concession. And so it was basically a divine discipline from the Lord in the, uh, uh, in the form of this evil spirit who probably had wanted to torment Saul all along, but maybe had been restrained. But at that point, then God said, okay, go. This is going to be my hand of judgment against him or discipline against him. All right, next question, uh, Matthew twelve thirty one. Uh, it's also repeated in Mark 3. We, won't, we don't need to look at it in, in both passages. Uh, Matthew 12, 31. This is the famous uh, story and occasion of the unpardonable sin. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. It's, uh, as I said, Mark three twenty nine is the other passage. Uh, 12, 31. I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Here's the question. Is it possible to lose your salvation? These two specific verses, Mark 3, Matthew 12, 31, are these verses referring to people who were never saved, or what are they talking about? And that's really a great way to ask the question, because we have to understand what they are talking about. And the key to understanding this passage is understanding the historical context in which Jesus made this. Basically, what you have going on here is this. By this point in Jesus' ministry, he had been ministering well over two years, maybe close to three years. During that time, he performed a number of miracles. Many of them are recorded in Matthew 8 and 9, if we had time to go back there, where he cast out demons, raised the dead, healed the sick, all of these uh, just phenomenal miracles. And he did so to prove his claims of deity, to prove he was the Messiah. He was basically setting forth the evidence that John presents in his gospel, where he says, you know what, Jesus did so many signs I couldn't record them all, but these are written. These are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life through his name. So John basically says, I'm going to mention some of Jesus' miracles as evidence or proof that he is who he claimed to be and that should convince you to believe in him. That's why John wrote his gospel, one of the primary purposes. So Jesus did all of these miracles and the leaders of Israel saw all of these miracles for two to three years. They saw them, they knew they were miraculous And they knew that there was something unique about them. But because they did not want to believe, because they didn't want to heed the evidence, they instead made the declaration that Jesus did his miracles in the power of Satan. Now, they knew that wasn't true. But that was their official declaration to protect their power, to protect their influence in Israel among the people because they were losing their, their... 
credibility. They were losing to this Jesus of Nazareth. All sorts of people were going after him. So to discredit him, they stated what they knew wasn't true. Their official declaration was, after seeing all the evidence, Jesus is doing what he is doing in the power of Satan. And on that, or in response to that, Jesus said, Because I am doing my miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has enabled me to do this for proof, for evidence. You take the Holy Spirit's evidence and you twist it and say it's satanic, that's unforgivable, unpardonable. That's what is going on here. So there's a sense in which, actually, that the unpardonable sin, a sense in which it can't be committed today. Now, I know people can reject Christ, but people who reject Christ can also later be brought to repentance and turn to Christ. Probably most of you in here didn't come to Christ the first time you heard the gospel. You rejected it. Maybe you heard it many times. Maybe you fought kicking and screaming before you finally yielded to the Lord. So this is not talking about people who reject the gospel because all of us have rejected it one time or another, at least most of us. Very few respond the first time you hear the gospel. This is talking about people who see the miracles of Jesus as evidence from the Holy Spirit of his deity and messiahship. They see it for two to three years. They have all the evidence. And knowing it's not true, they say, this is satanic. And Jesus said, that's unpardonable. So in answer to your question, this really is not talking about losing salvation. These were, these were clearly uh, unbelievers who weren't just unbelievers unsure. They, they had all the evidence. They made a willful final decision. And Jesus declared that unforgivable. All right, uh, next question. Um, I am currently taking a, let's go to Colossians 2 for, for this, not on this passage, but Colossians chapter 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 2. Uh, It says this, I am currently taking a philosophy class at MSU. Currently we are talking about metaphysics. Philosophers say there's a problem with believing in God. How can an all-knowing, all-loving God allow evil? I can reconcile the question internally, but how do I put this in words. Uh, this issue uh, of evil and the goodness of God, etc., is uh, technically known as the study of theodicy. That's the, the technical term for it. Uh, how, how do you reconcile evil, horrendous evil in the world, with the goodness and all, a, a good and all powerful God? It's a very complex issue, very involved. But, short answer to your question is this uh, How Scripture deals with the problem is very straightforward. It says God is good. God created. God created a spirit world, uh, angelic world, Satan, Lucifer among them. Satan, according to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, decided to rebel against God. He is the one who brought evil into this universe. He brought wickedness into this universe. And then in Genesis chapter 3, he uh, tempted uh, mankind, caused them to sin. And then Paul states very clearly in Romans chapter 5, through Adam's sin, death came into this world. So the short answer to this question is, the biblical response is, why is there evil in this universe? And the answer is because of Satan and human beings. But people always want to put it on God. They want to somehow impugn the character of God when Scripture repeatedly says that God is not the author of sin. Scripture doesn't hesitate to state that. He is not the author of sin. Was it uh, a part of God's uh, 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 providential plan? Absolutely. Jesus is referred to as the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. 
So in the mind of God, he already was a part of his, his plan. He knew uh, that his son would die uh, for the sins of, of mankind. Uh, but Scripture lays the problem of evil, not at God's feet, but at Satan's and at Adam and Eve's feet. And so that is the uh, that's short answer. There, there's much more to be said about that. But just let me give you a caution on this subject. I, you're, I know you're in this class. Um, Colossians 2.8, a very important verse. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Basically what Paul is saying in there is that most philosophy is human wisdom and it's contrary to revelatory wisdom. And that's one of the main differences between human philosophy and biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is revelation-based. We believe God has spoken. God has spoken in His Word. We take our wisdom from what God has said, not the reasonings of man. And that is why a lot of people can get all tied up in knots in philosophy, because they're wrestling with the reasonings of man rather than going back to revelation. Uh, Follow-up on this, how uh, when do I respond when students uh, openly demean, deny, despise God when they have a, a bone to chew uh, in the classroom? How, how should you respond? Well, one way you should respond is not in surprise. Because Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. As we just saw in Romans chapter 1, this is what mankind wants to do. If we had time, we could really draw out of Romans 1 the picture that Paul paints there, that basically what people do is they take the knowledge of God and they put it in a pot, they put a lid on it and sit on the lid. That's the picture, the word picture that Paul describes. People don't want to believe the truth about God. They fight it. Why do, just think about this, beloved, why do people spend so much time, so much time on such an idiotic philosophy that nobody times nothing equals everything? That is a permeating view in our society. Evolution is just accepted as fact. Nobody times nothing equals everything. You know, you, if you were to leave church here tonight and you go outside and on the sidewalk, you see a little Lego house, you know, red, yellow, blue, little blocks and all that, what would you conclude? Would any reasoning person say, oh, someone was driving by in the car and they threw a box of Legos out and look what happened, a house occurred. Who would believe that? Someone would say, oh, a little kid must have been playing here and built the house. Well, beloved, our universe is a trillion times more complex than the Lego house. And people look at our universe and say, chance, random, accident. What is that? That is throwing the knowledge of God in a pot, putting the lid on and trying to sit on it. Trying to squelch it. Trying to squeeze it down. It is amazing how much people fight the knowledge of God. So, in response to your question, how should you respond? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that people tried to demean, deny, despise God. Romans 1 says that's what people do left to themselves. It's exactly what they do. You're just getting uh, maybe the, the sort of the chest unzipped and the heart revealed in a class like that because it really comes out in that type of setting where it doesn't always come out in every other setting. How much people hate God. How much they want to, you know, you know the, the line of Shakespeare, you know, thou protestest too much, you know. You know, the fact that they fight against it and and argue against it and try to come with all these complex reasons why God could not have created the world, why God does not exist, shows there is this this insatiable longing to somehow get rid of the knowledge of God. Somehow to try to eliminate it because it just presses on people's conscience. 
And they don't like the thought that they'll stand before that God someday. So there are people, many, who fight it and fight it viciously. And that's, that's what you're seeing. Don't let it take you by surprise. Um, but really the only thing you can do is, you, you know, you, in your, your discussions realize that, um, you know, you're coming at it from a revelatory point of view. I believe the Word of God. God has revealed Himself in His Word. If, if people don't accept that, then they're out on the ocean without an, an oar, out of paddle, because they're just going to use their own thoughts, their own reasonings, and who knows how much they spin around and where they end up. All right, next question says this. Uh, what is the difference between sin and abomination? Uh, these two terms are used uh, along with terms like transgression, lawlessness, unrighteousness, evil. All of these terms describing wrong have a little bit of a different nuance of meaning. Uh, some terms, uh, one term means to sin, means to miss the mark, uh, to fall short. Uh, some say that these, some of these terms actually come from the archery world. You're shooting an arrow at a target, and sometimes you miss the mark, sometimes you fall short of the mark. Uh, uh, some suggest that some of the terms that are used in our Bible for evil, wrong, come out of that environment because they are very picturesque. Uh, the word abomination, abomination, sin, uh, they, again, sin just means to, to miss the mark or fall short of the mark. Abomination has, the, the nuance there is more of the, the emotional connotation of how terrible something is, uh, whereas the term sin just states it more as a fact. So uh, you don't need to draw a lot of strong distinctions, but there are some distinctions just emphasizing various aspects. You've got that statement in 1 John, sin is lawlessness. Uh, so again, unrighteousness, evil, wickedness, uh, transgression, abomination, all com communicate different nuances of evil. But specifically your question, abomination emphasizes more the um, negative emotional connotation from God's point of view of something being uh, horrendous and abomination. All right, next question is this, and there are a lot of passages listed on this one, so we won't try to turn to them all, but I'll just make a few comments. It says, uh, where from Scripture can you draw doctrinal assurance of the pre-trib rapture while considering, and then here's a list, Matthew 13, 47 to 52, Matthew 13, 24 to 30, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Matthew 10, 22, Matthew 24, 13, and all other exhortations through Scripture to endure to the end. So here's someone wrestling with pre-trib rapture and statements about the end, specifically the second coming. Well, a couple comments I would make on this. One, uh, it's very important as you're studying this topic, to understand the distinction that I think is clear in Scripture between what Scripture refers to as the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, commonly known as the rapture, and the second coming of Jesus to the earth. I believe that there is enough scriptural evidence that those are two separate events. One is being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. The other is Jesus coming to the earth. So some of these passages you list here are talking about the second coming. They're really not even talking about the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air or the rapture. Secondly, I would make this comment. It's important that you understand the di difference, the issue of evidence versus proof. Now, maybe you've heard some uh, preachers say that you can prove a pre-trib rapture, and maybe that's what has you concerned, at least from my conversation with you this morning. I think that would be uh, inaccurate. No one can prove the pre-trib rapture. If the pre-trib rapture could be proven, then every Christian would believe in it, right? I mean, you can prove the doctrine of the Trinity. Every true Christian believes in the Trinity, because you can prove that doctrine. But you can't prove the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture. You can give evidence. And I do believe the evidence for a pre-trib rapture is the most compelling evidence. But that's what it is. It's evidence. 
So I base my view on a pre-trib rapture on the evidence. Is it, it is, is it absolutely conclusive? No, it's not. Could I be wrong in my view? Absolutely. Can I say with 100% assurance that the rapture will be pre-tribulational? No, I can't. Would I place that doctrine on the same level as the Trinity? Absolutely not. But I think that's where the evidence points. But maybe you've heard people who present it in such a strong way that they imply any other view is heretical or unbiblical. That would be unfortunate because we're all trying to wrestle with the same information. I think the information points toward pre-trib, but it may not. Our next question is on Galatians 1. So you're in Colossians. You can go back a couple letters to Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, It says... But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And the question is, Galatians 1.19 seems to say that James, the Lord's brother, is an apostle. He was not one of the twelve. So just who or how many could this title be rightfully ascribed to? This is an excellent question. Really a good catch here because James, our Lord's brother, did not become saved until after the resurrection. He wasn't one of the twelve. And Jesus said, of the twelve excluding Judas, and then you've got a debate over, you know, Matthias or Paul, that there are going to be 12 apostles sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom. So there are clearly 12 unique apostles. We just saw in Revelation 21 the names of the 12 apostles written on the foundation of the walls. So this is a great question. Well, what do we do with this? James, and, and there, there are others in the New Testament who are called apostles. How do we answer this? Here's the answer. Um, the word apostle simply means one who is sent. Now, when it's apostle, the apostles of the Lord, you could almost say apostles with a capital A, it's referring to the twelve, the ones who were sent by the Lord. But churches in the first century sent out apostles. That is, they sent out representatives to do ministry. Sometimes the apostles sent out apostles. They sent out representatives from themselves to go carry out. Paul sent Timothy to do a task. Timothy was then an apostle with a small a in that sense. So he was an apostle in that sense. So the term apostle, when it's used in the New Testament, is not always used in the technical sense of just referring to the twelve who will be on the twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It it sometimes is used as a spiritual leader who is commissioned or sent by another group of leaders or by a church or that type of thing. So always just look in context how the word is being used. But it's a great catch on your part to realize, oh, this is kind of posing a problem to me, but it's really not a problem when you realize the word can be used technically to refer to a very specific group or generally to anyone who is sent by a church, by an apostle, etc. Our next question says, are ranks of resurrection a biblical doctrine? The idea that believers have ranks in heaven, are there, is this a true biblical doctrine? Well, I think I know what you're asking there, and and I would say, ask that way, no. The Bible does not talk about ranks in heaven. You know, there aren't going to be people, you know, who uh, are are in the the highest heaven. Some you're in a little lower heaven, you know, and some are way over on the other side of the tracks and that kind of thing. It's not going to be that kind of thing at all. However, what you may be wrestling with is the fact that the New Testament does talk about the famous seat of Christ, judgment seat of Christ, where our all of our lives will be evaluated. We will be rewarded, and so it's not going to be the same for every Christian. 
a Christian who loves the Lord and has been faithful, uh, and then there's a Christian who hasn't been very faithful uh, in his walk with the Lord, uh, it's not going to be the same for them at the judgment seat of Christ. God is a God of equity, justice, uh, he, righteousness. He's not going to just say, well, all Christians are the same, and I'll reward you all the same. That's why there are exhortations throughout the New Testament. Be faithful, endure, be righteous. Uh, deal with sin. So if that's what you're asking about, are there rewards? Yes, there are rewards. And the, the implication of Revelation 4 and 5 is we'll cast those at the feet of Jesus in worship. We won't go through eternity bragging about our rewards. Obviously, that would be totally a counter, uh, counter to the, the, uh, the attitude of humility and awe in heaven. But yes, there are going to be rewards. So that kind of distinction at the judgment seat of Christ will be but there aren't ranks of resurrection or ranks in heaven where some people have a higher place in heaven than others. All right, uh, next question says this, and you can just jot down the passage. Um, if my wife remarries and then comes to repentance, if she becomes unmarried again, may I, if she is willing, remarry her? Uh, my guess is, without being able to talk with the, the person that this person is wrestling through, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, you can jot that down. You may be familiar with it. In the law of Moses, you know, a man is married, then his wife divorces. She goes, marries someone else, then divorce. Then God said he could not take her back. So this man may be wondering about that passage. And I would say this, that is a passage in Mosaic law. Nothing uh, along those lines is reiterated under the new covenant. I'm not sure that is binding. We don't know why specifically God stated that, just like we don't know why. God said a lot of things in the old covenant. Uh, you know, why did he say don't boil a kid in his mother's milk? We have no clue, frankly, what that means. We really don't. And all kinds of conjecture and speculation, but, you know, it's where a lot of the, the Jewish laws today about kosher laws come from, but it's, it's total speculation. We weren't there. Uh, the people of Israel knew what God was talking about. Sometimes we can have insight. Sometimes we don't know. Uh, we don't know why God said what he did. And so we're not exactly sure what the reasoning was in Deuteronomy 24, but I'm not sure that that's binding under uh, the new covenant today. Uh, so, but th that's, you know, the question you seem to be wrestling with probably should be handled more in a one-on-one -on -one sort of biblical counseling situation with all the dynamics and the whole picture. So don't take anything I said here as uh, sort of a definitive answer on your particular situation. All right, last question. Uh, it says, question from today's message. Uh, you had very good thoughts regarding employer-employee relationships, but I don't consider employees to be slaves. And that's true, and I said that in the message, you may remember, I said it's not an exact parallel, but there are some close parallel or principles. Uh, then it says, uh, another group comes to mind, the boys and girls who are in the sex slave trade, and I'm sure some are Christians. Are they supposed to be submissive and patiently endure, or shouldn't they oppose their situation? And I would say yes, because that's basically kidnapping. I mean, there's nothing in Scripture that says if you are kidnapped and you're being held hostage unlawfully, you should submit to your unlawful capture. That's, that is total, has nothing to do with what we were talking about this morning. So if you were kidnapped, some robber came into your house and at gunpoint took you away and took you kidnapped, uh, there would be nothing wrong, uh, nothing unbiblical if you had opportunity to escape or to resist or whatever. You don't just, uh, that, that is totally illegal, it's totally unlawful, and uh, escaping an unlawful situation, it, it would not it would not violate anything scripturally. Okay, great questions. Lord willing, we'll do this again next month. Let's stand as we close tonight.
Father, thank you for our time together this evening, our time of praise and worship, and then our time looking into your word on these uh, various, a variety of topics. And uh, even though time did not allow us to really delve into detail on some of these questions that certainly deserve a much more thorough treatment, we pray, Lord, that it would at least give us food for thought and consideration of how to think about some of these things in a, uh, from a biblical point of view. And that is our desire uh, always, is to have your perspective, to think, uh, to think according to your thoughts, uh, to think your way, and so enable us to do that, uh, not merely as an intellectual process, but for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.